I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder in Oregon. 6.45 p.m. on January 17th, 1989, the night before he was to present the findings of his investigation. Michael Frankie walked out of the Dome Building, headquarters of the Oregon Department of Corrections. Forty minutes later, Elise Clausen found his car with the driver's side door open. I went out the front steps, and the door to his car was open, and I hollered at him because I couldn't see him, and I had this really creepy feeling. After a four-hour search, his body was found outside the office building's north entrance. He had been stabbed in the heart and was lying in a pool of his own blood and the glass he shattered trying to get back inside. He was a public official who discovered corruption in his own department the night before he was to address the legislative committee on this very subject. He was stabbed in the heart in front of the building where he worked. Corrections was made up of literally family members, an ex-wife, a wife, a cousin, an uncle, a brother, a sister. And they basically interlocked and protected each other. There had been issues in the prison system that he discovered and wanted to remedy. I think he made a number of people in the department uncomfortable probably the head of prisons, Dick Peterson. Scott McAllister, who was the AG lawyer who had for the previous 12 or 13 years been assigned to corrections. And so that's the third member of that collection of of Department of Corrections officers on on the outs with, with Frankie. About a week after the murder, the police held a press conference and announced they were interested in talking with a man who had been seen in the dome building. He quickly uh, became known as the man in the pinstripe suit. The pinstripe suit was supposed to disarm him, get him in his office, and make it look like a suicide. I went to a psychic, and she said that he has somebody in custody right now named John K. He says it's C. Krauss. She said he probably didn't do it, but he had some information about it. 
they didn't like the people his confession would ultimately lead to. That's what it looks like, for sure. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. By outward appearances, at the time of Michael Frankie's murder, then-Governor Neil Goldschmidt was Oregon's golden boy. He'd inherited a broken correction system, but hired Michael Frankie and made strides in proving the department's reputation, which was tarnished by the 86 investigation. He seemingly had nothing to lose by pursuing Mike's killer. So why would he resist? Well, that was the big question. I mean, for all anyone knew, he was... uh completely clean. He, he had been the golden boy of Oregon politics for years since he ran as a very young, handsome candidate for mayor and was even considered a likely candidate for president. People talked about him being the first Jewish president. And here he was, governor, resisting my requests and other requests in the media for more attention to the 86 investigation and, and the possibility that Michael Frankie was investigating corruption in his department. He was resisting it, and, and, and I couldn't figure it out because he was a smart politician besides everything else, and he hadn't come into office until after the 86 investigation, or 86 cover-up, as I think of it now. It didn't make any sense. I couldn't figure out what was going on. Because he could have easily tacked it on to a mess he already inherited. Oh, absolutely. He could have blamed it on his predecessor. The, the, uh, yeah, it, it happened under the previous administration. But there was no way anybody would have been prepared for the reason why. No one thought there was a problem except me, I guess. And then there would be a huge problem. We would learn later that uh, he had a great deal to cover up. I'm Lauren Bright Pacheco, and this is Murder in Oregon. If Goldschmidt's inaction was a mystery, what's clear now is Salem and Oregon were heavily riddled with crime and corruption. Chuck Side served as a state representative in Oregon's legislature from 1984 to 89. He grew up and into power in Salem's political system. And according to him, corruption has a long, colorful history in the area. There's a lot of payoffs. You know, there was just basically the politicians knew who to get and who not to get in those days. And it was literally the good old boy system that, that worked for many, 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 many years. Well, when I came home from college, well, there was seven people that ran the town. And they came to me because of my dad's friendships with them and said, hey, we want you on the school board. Oh, okay, I'll be happy to do that. I was on the school board within two weeks. It was kind of nice. It was just an opportunity for, and I learned a lot, because everything's political. Everything's political. So I learned that. As Chuck talked us through Oregon's checkered past, he gave us a tour of his beautifully restored historical office building. It's in downtown Salem, not far from the Dome building, and has been utilized for many purposes over the years, 
It was once a Masonic lodge and even has a floor that served as a booze-friendly ballroom during Prohibition, complete with an antique pump organ. Yeah, pump them hard. Just like the one Salem's elite class would have danced to back in the 1930s. So uh, the bar was up here. The, the original bar is still there. But this is where the organ was inside this little mezzanine. And, of course, that's where the slot machines were. And you had a little stair on the other side of this wall before it was remodeled. Where that was where the guard was. So they would know if they were going to get raided. Or oh, yeah, yeah. And you, you didn't touch them because they were so powerful that everybody belonged to a Masonic Lodge. They had a lot of weight when it came to getting people elected and all that. And Chuck Side's own political career path wasn't too far off from that sort of model. According to Chuck, he didn't choose politics as much as politics chose him. After eight years on the school board, I was asked to run for the House of Representatives. Those same good old boys, the ones who ran the town and so quickly installed Chuck onto the school board, they also pushed for his election to the state's House of Representatives. That's where he really started to get a first-hand look into the structure of power in Oregon. We had a governor named Neil Goldschmidt. Uh, Neil was the type of person like a Bill Clinton. You go into a room and you just could follow him out. In our first episode, we talked a bit about what Mike Frankie walked into on the heels of the 1986 investigation into corruption within Oregon's prisons. Chuck Sides actually watched it unfold. The hookers and everybody were out on Portland Road, which is Highway 99, and the truckers were funding the prostitutes and all that stuff, and that was normal. But it was uh, very low-key, and he didn't. It, 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 it's not until I started, when I got elected, I started riding around with the city police. I learned more about my city than I ever knew in terms of where things were done and all that other stuff. It was also extremely segregated. Salem did not allow minorities to live here. Even in the 50s, they were told by no uncertain terms, you're gone. Just get out of here by, by sundown. So I went to school in a big, big school, high school. Well, there was two blacks. And, uh, you know, it was stuff like that that was happening that I never saw. But it was controlled by six or seven people, and things were put up with. But there were some situations that were beyond that system's power to contain. If Goldschmidt, as I thought at the time, was clean, then it was obvious even then that Marion County, the state government and the county government was anything but. I mean, the two previous DAs had had been pushed out of office. One had gone to prison for dipping into public funds and and giving out large amounts of confiscated weapons to his buddies. And the second one was pushed out of office in midterm over a domestic assault report. Here's Chuck Side's take. If you want to get into it, uh, Dick Van Dyke's son, Chris, uh, was the DA in town. And he was an up-and-comer and basically... um, was going to be the next governor because he had that charisma, a lot like Goldschmidt and all that stuff. Chris beat up his girlfriend and she filed police charges. And instantly, copies of that got out because the Republicans didn't want him running for governor. He was too good a candidate. But it knocked him out because of that whole scandal. We have a copy of that police report 
And while the charges against Van Dyke were later dropped, the political damage was done. Here's Phil. And so he left in 83. And, and each of these changes in, in the DA's office were sort of palace coups in a way. And Dale Penn ended up as the DA in about 85. Remember Dale Penn? He was the district attorney who oversaw that 1986 LB Day investigation into corruption within corrections, as well as the investigation into Michael Frankie's murder, both during a time when the social atmosphere in Salem could be characterized as rather steamy and seedy. The entire scene down there was overheated. It was the 80s. It was coke. Uh, for the professional class, meth for the rest of of, of the population. And the the rest of the population included lots and lots of ex-cons and cons on parole. Salem, by law at that time, had all the prisons. (laughs) And so that naturally drew all the families there. Uh, when, When they got out on parole, they would often stay in that area. So it was a strange culture that included all the the public officials and bureaucrats on one hand and a large criminal population on the other. So that kind of culture, that kind of environment where you have ex-cons mingling, you know, side by side with the people who are supposed to be policing them, that sounds like the perfect recipe for corruption. Well, it it certainly made it much easier, especially if if you understand corruption as a part of the system. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? 
Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Salem in the 1980s didn't exactly sound like Mayberry. Multiple people we interviewed referenced variations of a sex, drug, and hot tub-fueled atmosphere. Here's Chuck Sides again. Down the block was a company called Key Title. It no longer exists, but Key Title had uh, beautiful women working for them. And they got into a partnership for fun, parties and that type of thing. This guy named Scott McAllister, who you've heard worked for the Attorney General's office, uh, had photos of those. It was the, uh, the naked hot tub stuff that was going, but it was really relieving tensions after work, and obviously there was the relationships and everything. But I was totally naive until Michael, and then all of a sudden this stuff came out, and uh, the cons knew it. And these subcultures and communities even formed inside the prisons, where corruption, like water, also found its way and likely with even less resistance. There's a culture, a community inside the prisons, both sides, the staff and the cons and that type of thing. I used to find it fascinating because you met everybody, the serial killer called the I-5 bandit, uh, you met Diane Downs. Diane Downs is the notorious Oregon postal worker who murdered her young daughter and attempted to kill her two other children in the 1990s. At first, she claimed the kids were shot during an attempted carjacking. Then she showed up to trial shockingly and noticeably pregnant. You met these people live, sitting like this close, but it's just characters like that you find in the prison. And Chuck says prisons at the time didn't exactly put the cell in celibate. There was a lot of sex going on, and you would take your walkie-talkies in those days, or whatever you want to call them, and there was a couple beep sounds that went out, and that meant there was a supervisor in the area coming, straighten up. Let's get back to someone Chuck Sides mentioned, Scott McAllister. That's the assistant AG Michael was having trouble removing, and his name will keep coming up. And these girls in hot tubs... McAllister apparently had photos. He took them, is my guess. But there was a number of people there. I mean, but he was a part of the attorney general's office. That was what they were doing. And uh, so there was that little cult out there that uh, in in every large uh, community, both private and public, you'll find there's sin. (laughs) because we're all sinners. Uh, But you'll find fighting and you'll find sex. 
After moving to Salem in 1974, Jim Hill built an impressive career in law and politics. Before serving two terms as the state's treasurer, he was an assistant attorney general, a state representative, and a state senator. He also filled L.B. Day's vacant seat, who passed after the 86 investigation. And Hill would have heard from the same prison guards, the same inmates, and the same officials who reported corruption the first time. And I remember when one of the uh, conclusions out of the investigation was uh, that the corrections institutions, each one of them was run like a fiefdom. And, and so that was always something uh, that, that was out there. I, again, you know, when you talk about corrections, whenever you're in close proximity to unlawful people, you're always concerned about that. Hill says a stubborn naivete was firmly ingrained in the state. Again, see, this was a, a time when... Um, People felt that all the bad things that happen everywhere else in the country, <laughs> they can't happen in Oregon. You know, we're above and we're better than that. But once Michael uh, was, was murdered, obviously that changed everything. But Hill was well aware of an ongoing pattern of corruption, particularly in corrections, including the A-Shed fire, which was arson for insurance purposes. Well, we knew about the fire, and I'm going far back in my memory banks now, but I remember there was discussion that that some people had, now, for example, donated things to corrections for the inmates, and that the inmates weren't getting them, and that corrections personnel was taking those things for themselves or selling them or, or, or whatever. As time went on, as I started to put things together, and this is just my impression, this is my opinion, that there were prominent people in the community that were involved in illegal activity, and that that had to go into the prisons. That's what makes sense. I mean, you can't be so naive as to think that drugs don't get into prison, and I just started to get the impression that for people to want to take the risk of killing the head of corrections, there was something very big that was being hidden. And it could have included a variety of people from a variety of social classes who'd long profited from illegal activities. You know, in a lot of communities, you you find that when you have the usual things of prostitution, gambling, those kind of things, sometimes there are prominent people in the community who have a connection to that. However, when you start talking about drugs, the ante goes up tremendously because, number one, you're talking about a lot of money, and you are also starting to get connected with some very dangerous people who will do what's necessary to protect themselves. And then there were the law officers themselves, the people on the ground. Jay Boutwell was a detective in the Marion County Sheriff's Department. 
with more than two decades of experience and firsthand knowledge of rampant corruption. Well, I know after I got into investigations, I determined and found out that it was uh, more corruption in this town than people knew. Uh, we were understaffed. Some of the people were not qualified. We had dirty cops. Some I wouldn't hire for a damn dog catcher. Dirty cops, dirty town. Boutwell says many of his fellow police officers were more interested in women than in doing police work. They would meddle with the girls in the office, other clerks in the office. It didn't matter if they were married, didn't make a damn to them. They'd do it anyway. I don't think there is one damn one of them that I would allow my wife to ever ride with because I know what they talk, I know what they do. But there was that kind of stuff going on. Then we had the prostitution going on, just right under your nose, and you didn't want to do anything with it. Then we had the gambling, same thing. One of the guys we took over there was a former Oregon State Police officer. Prefect Division, Oregon State Police. It must have infuriated you. Oh, yeah, it did. Because like I told people, you know, I didn't come here for money. I came here because I hate crooks. And I just got fed up. In person, Batwell has a wiry, restrained energy that crackles with intensity. Even now, he's the sort of guy you don't want to cross and the type of guy you want on your side. That's why I was known is don't screw with him because he'll bust your head. It's easy to understand how he got his nickname. That's why I got the name Mad Dog. And nothing made him matter than corruption. We took on the gambling and then we took on the prostitution. And that prostitution was something else. For years, uh, there was a network of prostitute houses. They were known as uh, rub shops, massage parlors. And uh, word was they had worked it for many years trying to make a prostitution case, but for some reason couldn't do it. Well, in about six weeks, we cleaned the whole county out of it. I think there was 10, 12, maybe 14 massage parlors that we got. And the man I was after, he was the kingpin. He owned most of Four Corners and was the inside actual owner, insulating himself by hiring all these other people. So the first one we took down was French Quarter, and in there we arrested members of Salem's Ethics Committee. So that's kind of how that went down. And it went down with meticulous surveillance. They put a uh, guard inside, which was for us as an undercover, and he was a former Army intelligence officer. So he was taking notes. So we got politicians, we got uh, attorneys, we got doctors, lawyers, big shots, people from Oregon State who are even here. We even got police officers that were transport officers from other cities here doing things of this nature. It was uh, out-and-out prostitution. The bad thing of it was is because of who we had in there is it goes to Dale Penn for prosecution. He was the district attorney. And because of who was in there, he didn't take it. So he shoves it over to the AG's office. And this is where it gets really interesting because uh, the case was never prosecuted. It was We say it was swept under the carpet, and that's what they basically did. But we had a judge in there even. The name we got was Sloper, Val Sloper, Southern Circuit Court judge. Whoever we got in there was people you did not believe. Boutwell says in addition to the high-level, bold-faced names they ensnared, it was also an airtight slam-dunk case. We had out-and-out out, uh, recall. We could have did a recall on it because of what was going on, who these big people were. 
RICO stands for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations, a federal law that provides for extended criminal penalties for acts performed as part of an ongoing criminal organization. All kinds of criminal activity was going on, drugs, you name it, was there. We had uh, paper trails, eyewitness, uh, confessions by the Johns, confessions by the prostitutes, positive IDs. There was no way in heck he could have lost that case. They gave it over to the AG's office, bam, just kind of like under the dirt. Nobody wants to talk about it. Did you ever question that? Well, yeah, I did. Well, we were told that they were going to take, take it for prosecution because they were going to work it. Penn, he was kind of closed-mouthed. Everybody was closed-mouthed about it. You know dang well it was something that they didn't want out in the news. And the more stories Boutwell shared, the more I was reminded of something Phil once told me. Salem was like a big sweater, and a thread of yarn had popped loose, and they couldn't afford to pull on it because the whole thing might come apart. Back to Boutwell. There's a string of arsons that I worked that I know has the same people in it. And every one of those things were the same thing. And that was at the time that Chris Van Dyke left and left uh, Michael Brown as the district attorney acting till election. I'd arrested a guy, the former Bail Supreme Court. And uh, I took him for several counts of uh, juvenile rape, rape and sex crime, done on an 11-year-old girl over a series of months. But these people all, all got the same, same thing, all tied together. Just like a sweater. And apparently, doing drugs also bonded the social levels of Salem at the time. Everyone was doing it. The drug bars in the city, the big Coke bars were Jonathan's and, and the Black Angus. The bartenders there would uh, have talked to me about how they, they preferred to be tipped with little bindles of cocaine. And with the lobbyists, the politicians, all the lawyers hanging out at these places, everyone was into it. Kevin even told me that in the bathroom, there was a special area set up just to do coke. Oh, and, and Jonathan's, yeah, there was a, a mirror. and <laughs> Everyone knew it, yeah. It was an open secret. And I've talked to people who did coke with judges, with politicians, of course. It was accepted. And, and, and it was immediately compromising. That's the problem here. That's the problem. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. 
So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. A man we will only refer to by his first name, Robert, had a front row seat to those compromised. He was a teen when he was hired to basically chauffeur a guy named Ron Spears, who managed an auto repair shop in Salem that provided more than just auto service. Started off driving him to work. Sometimes he'd say, yeah, come back about noon. Sometimes I'd show up, pick him up, and I'd have to wait an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. I'd stand around, see what was going on, and uh, I didn't really say much. They were working on a lot of uh, state and county vehicles. They had parking on the roof. So it started off a couple weeks of that, and then in the evening, we'd drive around and uh, he'd make pickups, as he put it. He'd be picking up cash. Ron was very proud of his uh, welding skills. And he'd have me look at a car, some of the old county and state cars they had back then. He goes, see if you can find the compartment. And I go, where? And he goes, okay, look, look in the back. So I'd look in the back. I'd try pulling carpet back and everything. Then he'd show me. In 30 seconds, he'd have a compartment open. 
So he'd custom fit these cars with hidden compartments. Yeah, and a lot of the cars had the little cage in the back. So these were corrections vehicles that were used to transport inmates, I assume. One of the times when he's mixing his beer with his quaaludes and he'd, he'd talk a lot, that's how you get him in the prison. They have their own auto shop in there. They know when it's coming. The guards know when it's coming. Yeah. So they were transporting drugs into the prison in yep. official vehicles. Uh, including the district attorney's office. Uh, this one lady that he was having a thing with, she'd always have her car down there. And he would place a round cylinder thing. Why did she stick out in your head? Uh, because she was down there a lot, especially for their after hours. Uh, you know, they'd kiss and all that. And, but she was hooked. I think she was doing the same thing he was, speed in the morning, quaaludes at night. And, and she worked at the district attorney's oh, office? Yeah. Yep. Sure, all these seedy stories sound salacious, but Phil, who's written four books on corruption, says these sort of situations are as American as apple pie. Well, I think it's uh, probably fairly typical of, of a, a lot of cities at the time. My first book, Portland Confidential, was about Portland back in, in the 50s when the old-style payoff system was in force. It was actually part of city government in Portland and in most major cities across the country. At the end of the month, the police captains and, and the head of the vice squad would go out to the major vice operators and collect what was due uh, based on the number of card tables, number of prostitutes, and so forth. And then divvy it up to the city council, the mayor, and other certain high-ranking police officials. My last book was about a suppressed vice scandal in Portland in the 70s, which is more like what was going on in Salem at the time. At that time in Portland, the narcotics uh, squad was actually putting drug dealers to work for them. They'd bust them, but they wouldn't take them in and arrest them. They'd just put them to work time and time again. And uh, they would take large percentage of the deal. They, they would take drugs off the street uh, from other drug dealers and uh, give them to their favorite drug dealers. But they'd put them back on the street. So that's the sort of thing that was going on in Salem. It wasn't that unusual. The uh, drug money is so big, it, it is hard to resist. And inevitably, you're going to have narcotics cops who fall into it. And there are a number of dirty narcotics cops in Salem. There, But beyond that, even those who don't become corrupt are compromised just because of the very nature of drug enforcement. The only way they can do it, since it's basically a crime that neither side is going to report the other four is to team up with half the drug dealers and usually after they bust them and get them to turn in their competition it's instantly compromising and very often leads to corruption was there an organized drug dealing group or gang in salem oh there were, there were several it's a big business it's a major part of the economy in salem any place else and so you had a number of people cooking meth they had to have their distribution systems people bringing in cocaine heroin and of course then marijuana was illegal that was a big part of it too and one of them of course was what we call the kaiser mafia a bunch of guys who'd grown up together in the attached suburb of kaiser started in high school dealing drugs breaking into places, getting into all sorts of trouble, but then figuring out how to stay out of it. 
That strategy apparently included paying off the local cops, some of whom they'd grown up and gone to school with, and cultivating business connections that reached behind bars. Vince Taylor ran with the Kaiser Mafia. It's just a bunch of group of guys that um, consider themselves untouchable, you know, with a lot of money and a lot of stuff. And they were running Kaiser in a sense where, you know, if you didn't buy from them, then you better have an excuse why you don't buy them from them or ask them if it's okay to get it somewhere else, you know, stuff like that. And their drug dealing territory also included the prisons. Yeah, oh, definitely. One of the members of the Kaiser Mafia was Taylor's childhood friend, a guy named Tim Natividad, who was also known as Rooster. He's someone who'll heavily figure into multiple facets and theories about Mike Frankie's murder. A good-looking guy with dark hair, dark eyes, and symmetrical features. But even as a kid, Natividad came with a past. Uh, I met Tim two days after he got here. I think he came here on what the witness protection program type thing with his mom. Became instantly friends with him. I mean, I don't know when that exact was, but I mean like in the 80s. And then Tim started using drugs. Major personality change. He uh, was one person that I can think of that should have never, ever got involved in that kind of thing because he was a totally different person. Going to people's house and, you know, they owe money and uh, he would get crazy, you know? I mean, God, for $20, you owes you $20, you're going to beat him to death, you know? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. He was violent, very violent. I mean, he probably pulled a gun on me at least in my lifetime 10 times and two of the times pulled the trigger, but there was, it uh, misfired, you know, it didn't shoot, so. Tim got a reputation, and many, including officials and corrections, knew he was violent. Do you think that it's possible that Tim killed Michael Frankie? I do. I do. Yep, I'd almost guarantee it, bet on it. Why? I just believe he did. Because uh, he did a lot of crazy stuff that no one knew about and then would have a huge amount of money, you know. And then what I heard, but, you know, I can't tell you this for sure, but that he was paid to do that, you know, by prison people that were involved and were were stressing Frankie coming out with some crazy stuff, you know. It would have ended their job, career, and everything. You know, Tim, he was capable of doing that. And um, funny how he got killed with a knife, and that was Tim's main thing. He always had multiple knives on him, always had one in his hand with a blade out. Always, always, always. I can't ever say for sure, but I would say he, of anybody in this whole world, would be the one responsible for that. On the next episode of Murder in Oregon. Corruption and drugs shatter families. I was at home taking care of the baby, being a good girl while he was out selling drugs. Instigating violence. I was terrified. I knew he was going to kill me and grab that damn gun. And evil. He had shot and killed him. It's her boyfriend or husband. And she just started screaming. All tied to the same man and possibly to the murder of Michael Frankie. Murder in Oregon is hosted by Lauren Bright Pacheco and Phil Stanford. Executive producers are Noel Brown, Lauren Bright Pacheco, and Phil Stanford. 
Supervising producer and lead editor is Taylor Shacoin. Sound design by Tristan McNeil. Story editing by Matt Riddle. Written by Phil Stanford, Matt Riddle, and Lauren Bright Pacheco. Music written and performed by the Diamond Street Players and mixed by Taylor Shacoin. With music supervision by Noel Brown. Additional music by Tristan McNeil. Murder in Oregon is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how three 20-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.